welcome to The Feminist Shift. Welcome back, everyone. We are here for a season two of Feminist Shift. This is episode one. Hey, Jen. Ground floor. <laughs> Ground floor of season two. <laughs> so where there's only up to go. <laughs> That's the goal, only up. <laughs> well, how are you? What's new? Uh, good, yeah. So uh, I've got some exciting news with Feminist Shift, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so what else do I talk about on the Feminist Shift podcast and Feminist Shift? The, uh, I know, right? Nailing it. Nowhere but up is what we said, right? That was the catchphrase. <laughs> Our new slogan, everyone. Just breaking news. <laughs> <Holy up. laughs> um, but no, but I have a real announcement. Uh, we have a new grant that came through, uh, through uh, Women and Gender Equality Canada. And so you're going to see us talking about and uh, working on over the next couple of years, um, a joint project with community justice initiatives that's going to look at how we respond around safety and justice, particularly for women who are experiencing homelessness um, or precariously housed uh, and at risk of homelessness. So we're gonna start to tackle some of the issues that they face around gender-based violence, uh, which I'm really excited about because it is about time, 2021. It's time, Mm -hmm. it is Mm -hmm. time for this conversation. So that has me excited. Yeah. Yeah, and CJI does incredible work. So I'm super excited about this partnership. Yeah, it actually kind of, uh, you know, it stemmed a little bit from a a podcast we did last season uh, where we were talking with Kate from CGI on restorative justice and other things that kind of sparked a little bit of a thought that there's uh, there's some work and some collaboration that we can do there. So that's kind of a cool outcome of a podcast is to flip that into a three-year project. So so Network and Neighbors Training. uh, So we finished that. Uh, Folks might be familiar with that. If not, you're not spending enough time on our website. And I'm going to leave it bag so that you feel the impulsive need to go to feministshift.ca slash Network of Neighbors and uh, figure it out. But our Network of Neighbors Training essentially designed to support residents in our community to uh, act as supports for people experiencing violence in the home. Uh, We are wrapping that up. Uh, We have all the materials up on our website, our toolkits up. However, we also have a podcast version coming of that training, um, which is going to be really exciting. So you'll be able to sit in with the Feminist Podcast and listen in and learn that training that way. Yes. And I can say myself, I was a participant in that training. Uh, I had nothing to do with delivering or planning that training. So I can say very honestly, and frankly, it was a, an incredible training session. I think that you and Rachel Walzer did a really good job on that program. Oh, thanks, Ross. I appreciate that uh, that insight. So if um, the vagueness didn't work, now the glowing endorsement. <laughs> yeah, how's that? Happening in real time. <laughs> um, and we also, we've been working on some articles. I'll leave that to you since yes. you're behind this article. Yeah, so our our podcast took a little hiatus, but our work certainly hasn't. As Jen mentioned, we have that grant and we just finished, we're wrapping up a network of neighbors, but we've also been busy, busy, busy writing. So we have monthly articles showing up in Metroland papers. So you'll find them um, in any number of papers, really. Uh, They've appeared in Cambridge Times, Toronto.ca, I think, Jen, or Toronto.com. All over, Waterloo Chronicle, yes. And our latest piece is the five non-negotiables for a self-proclaimed feminist government. And in it, we outline the five pieces we we want to see from a government that um, calls itself a feminist government. Yeah, I think that's like the, those are the highlights, right, Jen? 
Yeah, um, speaking of Cambridge, uh, I just want to do a quick shout out because I'm very excited that uh, Cambridge has worked past the negotiation and conversation phase and has finally uh, doubled down on supervised consumption sites because I don't think people realize how tied in um, safe supply is to gender-based violence and other things grossly affecting uh, women and gender diverse folks in our community. So, you know, uh, finger snaps, uh, <laughs> high fives, <laughs> clapping. I'm really excited about that, Ross. Yeah, it was a years and years long process. And uh, yeah, it, it came as a surprise to me, but uh, I'm happy to see it. As you said, it's super important for that community. And I loved uh, Mayor Catherine McGarry wrote a beautiful piece that appeared in the Kitchener Record and gorgeous piece. But what really hit me was when she said, I refuse to defer this decision further. I refuse to let more people die needlessly. Mm-hmm. I don't think you need any other reason. No, there it is. All right. So what are we doing this month? I'm super excited for this month's episode. Today, we'll be talking to Sarah Bozveld. We're talking about jurisdiction, not in terms of, you know, pulling apart the Constitution, but uh, how it impacts advocacy in the work that we do and how we can use our understanding of jurisdiction to enhance our advocacy work. It's going to be a tough conversation. I have my TV fireplace channel on, which has become my like go-to during fall. Uh, it's roaring behind me. I have the tea beside me. I'm ready for this. I say, let's just dive in. Let's go. All right. So we are here to welcome Sarah Bosevelt, uh, manager of advocacy at YWCA Toronto. Uh, she is a freelance writer and mother of a toddler, and yet she still somehow manages to spend too much time on Twitter. Does that resonate, Ross? <laughs> uh, no her, comment. Uh, her passion for gender equity stems uh, from her time as senior writer at Chatelaine, Canada's leading women's magazine. Before that, she worked as a general assignment reporter for the National Post, the Globe and Mail, and the Toronto Star. Sarah, we are thrilled to have you here with us today. Oh, I'm thrilled to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks for being here. So. The topic that we want to discuss today sort of has come up from work that you and I have done in our coalition work with YWC Ontario. And it's this thing about jurisdiction. And I don't mean I want to get into the weeds of constitutional law or anything, because obviously... Thank goodness. (laughs) Exactly. Not a single one of us is qualified to do that. But what I'm more interested in talking about is the seemingly malleable lines of jurisdiction. So we know, obviously, it's federal, it's provincial, and municipal, fine. We know federal levels deal with big issues, immigration, national defense, banking, criminal law. Provincial deals with things like healthcare, education, and then municipal, waste, fire, police, etc. But when does the issue relegated to the provinces and territories, say, become one of national oversight? So we got the Health Accord, granted it's been slowly dismantled in the last four or five years. We're seeing the national child care plan slowly creep across the country, one province and territory at a time. But we watched the Pharmacare bill die on the floor in 2020, despite being a campaign promise of more than one party in the 2019 election. Uh, the reason given by the naysayers that the plan infringed on provincial jurisdiction. So you're a former journalist. You've covered politics for some time. What, as far as you've gleaned, is actually happening here? Is it really jurisdiction? Is that the problem? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I don't no, but I can talk about sort of the problematic nature of these jurisdictional aspects, especially as they pertain to promises that are made in elections, which a lot of this comes from and you alluded to with the Pharmacare um, promise from 2019. So we've just been through a federal election, right? We've all, you know, it was 10 minutes long, but we all got to the other side somehow. <laughs> 
Um, the big, big promises, um, they had to do with issues that are run by the provinces. COVID management, obviously we have public health as a large uh, federal arm of oversight in that regard, but the actual administration of these things is, as you said, run by the provinces and, and municipalities, right? And so there's COVID management and then there's also childcare, which is another, like those are the two really big issues. And so we saw really big promises around how we're going to respond to COVID in the long run, uh, things like vaccine passports, thing, and then certainly the childcare promise, which we know prior to the election had been contingent on each province signing deals with the federal government. So again, it's so interesting to me that these promises, yes, the federal government has a lot of power as the center of power here in Canada, but so much depends on the buy-in and the participation and the political will of these other jurisdictions. And so it really does muddy the waters a little bit because then the federal government is able to say, we will get this done. And obviously we trust, or maybe <laughs> lots of people don't trust that it'll happen, um, that they, they have the strategies and resources in place to actually make it happen and convince the provinces to play ball on a lot of this stuff, but it's all still kind of like huge asterisks on the, on the promise, right? Mm -hmm. um, depending, fine print, depending on whether or not there is some political will and whatever happens uh, provincially, that's yeah. huge. And so I find it, it can be very, it's simple and clear when you're talking about things like the military, you're talking about things like the banks, uh, and the public service, right? Do you, as a voter uh, for for listeners, think of how many times in your in the provinces on the or promises on the campaign trail that you heard, we will get this done for federal public service employees, right? Like whether that's gender equity, um, you know, pay equity promises or the vaccine mandates. That is, they have to do that because it's the only jurisdiction that they have control over, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of a workforce, so they cannot actually say every person who works in Ontario needs to be vaccinated. They can do the things like also mandating, putting mandates on federally overseen transportation, for example. So another promise that we saw was you can't ride a VIA train if you're not vaccinated, for example, or you can't work on a VIA train um, as staff if you're not vaccinated. Same with Air Canada or Canada Post. Like there's only these, there's these certain places where they are the employers that they have control over but then so you hear that kind of couched in those messages and promises but it really doesn't affect absolutely everyone and there are a lot of question marks and gaps mm -hmm. that the federal government despite being the core of power cannot actually do that much about mm -hmm. I mean I want to do I do want to pick up on you just mentioned transportation and this is one of the issues that we have found ourselves coming up against the wall of that's not our jurisdiction. You need to go to the province. However, it is in the calls for justice of missing and murdered Indigenous women inquiry uh, that we do have an accessible and reliable intercity bus system across Canada. So what happens there? So fine, it's a provincial, it's provincial jurisdiction. However, what we're calling for is a national system. So how does that impact our advocacy when we are saying, no, just like healthcare, a national transportation system is for all Canadians that, you know, it, we do need to move this out of the provincial jurisdiction. So 
how does it impact our advocacy? Fine, we have to go to the province, but we want this to be national. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, but just to background on what our efforts have been. So Roz, you and I were working on as part of the Ontario YWCA coalition. So that's a group of YWCAs from across Ontario. We wrote a letter to the tr- federal transport minister saying that there needs to be a national transportation plan. This happened, we sent this letter in June. In May, Greyhound decided they were piecing out of Canada altogether. They were not going to provide crucial transportation bus service uh, across the province anymore. And I mean, they already had the big routes, right, Roz? Like they had, mm-hmm. you know, from Sudbury to, to, you know, Thunder Bay to Toronto or like only to the big cities, um, quote unquote, big cities, right? When you're in a rural area, those are those are the big towns. And so um, that's all because it was like a market-based system. And we were exactly, as you said, there are some real safety issues uh, for for indigenous women and girls and, and gender diverse folks, but also for anybody who's fleeing gender-based violence or wants to in a rural setting, anybody who needs to access healthcare or a job and they don't have those services available to them close by. Mm-hmm. So there's some real safety and well-being issues at play there. And we had seen them play out in our communities uh, of member associations, YWCA wide in Ontario. So we wrote to the transport minister and we did have a conversation with the policy person there. And they essentially said, we'd have sent a letter, (laughs) just Mm -hmm. like we sent a letter to them. We're sending these letters to the, each of the heads of transportation in the provinces to urge them to try to come up with a better intercity bus situation because we are seeing market departure because in, and people, you know, when, when it's left to the market and this is a similar thing with childcare, right? You, it's all about the bottom line. It's not actually about serving the well-being of folks. Um, exactly. Right? And so Greyhound serviced the large areas in exchange for servicing the smaller population areas. Yeah. So when they stopped servicing altogether, it was small. Or well, actually, no, they started piecemeal stopping the services mm. to the smaller areas, which I'm not sure how they could do that since it was an agreement that they got the main, they had the main contract for the larger the routes, Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, mm. in exchange for taking the smaller routes. So yeah, market it's all, failure. It's all business, right? Exactly. It's business, it's monopoly. So, so the problem here in Ontario is that our Ontario government has decided that that is the best, that is how they want to deal with intercity busing. And because they're in charge of transportation, the roads, you know, licensing vehicles, all of that good stuff, that it is their decision how that service happens. So basically the directive that we got was you need to use your advocacy at the provincial level to urge them to sign our, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, or to, to have conversations with us and to open this up. So it's interesting as in, from an advocacy, you know, nonprofit advocacy point of view that they actually, it was indicated that they actually need us to, to help mm-hmm. them. And I'm seeing, and I'm actually being reminded so much of that, Roz, with, you know, that was back in June, but now that the federal liberals have won re-election in Ottawa and all those childcare deals are signed across the, the country in every province and territory except for Alberta and Ontario, we are now really feeling as advocates the pressure to pressure the Ontario government. <laughs> so mm-hmm. again, because Ontario has to sign that deal in order for them to get moving on building this national childcare system, we're 40% of the population or maybe even more, I'm not even 
correct on that. We're a lot of, we're a lot of Canada. We're Ontario. a big chunk. Yes. We're a big chunk. We're a big chunk. That's right. <laughs> so it's really, it's a lot of people who are waiting for childcare or who are underserved or who are paying out the nose when they needn't because we are not able to get this deal yet with the province. Mm-hmm. So again, it's not only just a jurisdiction thing. There's a lot of politics they're playing. You know, we had well, Ford's someone from the PCs in the media last week talking about how there's just not enough money on the table from the feds. Interestingly, this is the most historic amount of money put on the table ever mm-hmm. for federal childcare. And I mean, they did try in 2006 and then Harper came in and, and tore it up, but they never had $30 billion for all of Canada on the table. So the thing is that the feds, I guess, because I just sort of blabbed on about how, you know, their hands are tied in some ways, but they do have some carrots, right? They, they can pledge a lot of money. And then if you don't sign it, you're leaving money on the table as a province. And they know that because from, from again, because of this jurisdictional and, and we don't need to get in again into the weeds of transfers, right? Of money. But yes, the provinces get a lot of money from the federal government to help fund these things that they, these services that they provide. But, um, but they're always going to the feds asking for money. And so this is happening again with childcare. So I guess my point being that we are as advocates having to apply pressure to the province because it's not even enough for the federal government to say, here's a yeah. lot of money and get this done because it's, you know, especially when you have a province that is, you know, run as a business in a lot of ways, because that was the whole MO of this government. We're seeing that play out. And I mean, the jurisdictional aspect is a real pawn in the whole chess game of getting these things done, right? Exactly. So well, there's no it's... national childcare system without Ontario or Alberta, or mm-hmm. na- there's no national transportation system with a bunch of patchwork market run pro- provincial intercity busing approaches. There's, you know, even with the vaccine passport stuff, right? Like how do they even oversee and mandate that and ensure everybody's going to be doing it? They can't. So. What did you guys do? I'm all in the story now. I need to know what you wrote. You want to know the end of the story, Jen? I mean, it's a strategy question though, right? Because childcare advocacy started as national level advocacy. We were telling the federal government, we need a national childcare plan. And we were hearing that, well, that's provincial jurisdiction. So where does the advocacy start? So fine, you sent letters. That's good. But you know, maybe talk about them in public, maybe, maybe say the, the federal government has sent letters to ministers of transportation of each province saying we need to figure out a plan for transportation. This is a safety issue. This is a one of the calls of justice. Let's get down to business. So saying you sent a letter, but not actually saying it publicly, is it really doing anything? And so mm-hmm. fine. And sorry to answer your question, Jen. We're, we're, we're still strategizing, I'd say, eh, Sarah? Oh yeah, we're doing I mean, we have another campaign we're working on right now, but I mean, it's uh, transportation is as much a part of gender equity as anything else, right? So yeah, I think you make a really interesting point, Roz, because if we actually were even reached out to via stakeholder relations or anything like that saying, hey, we feel like it would be effective if you could shake the trees a little bit provincially as a, as a nonprofit or an organization that does advocacy to help get some attention on this mm-hmm. request, or even just have their comms people make a bigger deal of it with media, right? Like we are asking the provinces to make some good decisions on this and come to the table with us on this. And uh, let's talk about all of the reasons why this is an important issue. I mean, transportation doesn't always get talked about as a, 
a very sexy issue, right? I would I would like to formally let our listeners know that I think transportation is sexy. Oh, good. Did I say that? Because I grew up in Northern Ontario, where access to the Greyhound was a lifeline for a variety of reasons, right? And when they started to stop the smaller town um, routes because of demand, largely is where, or at least the rhetoric was because of demand, all of a sudden I had to find myself two hours, <laughs> find a way two hours to get to somewhere. In order to get on that track to go uh, one direction or another. And that's in a non-crisis situation where I just needed to get back to school, for example. Right. right? So what's um, the situation with your with your hometown now with transportation? Horse? <laughs> oh, no, dear. not literally. No. Not literally, yeah. but also Being kind facetious. of literally, right? Because there are some... So it's a tourism destination. So there is some misdirection that's happened around transportation within like so it's Manitoulin Island so transportation on Manitoulin because of a a, a sort of tourism lens kind of get people around so using tourism dollars but also relaying that into folks need to get to jobs to work these tourism uh, these seasonal jobs so uh, from there but in terms of connecting to an artery yeah you have some taxis now if you want to pay See, this, this right? actually reminds me of what we, we did have a few further conversations with the feds about the transportation plan. Like they have programs and initiatives. And essentially, I think the last meeting we had, Roz, wasn't it like we talked to uh, someone who said, someone who worked in, in transportation or, or they were they even in, maybe they were in infrastructure again. Like I think it's it was infrastructure, yeah. But they were saying, okay, we're running this like project where you can apply for funding mm-hmm. if you can come up with some creative plan. So it's again, not only downloading it to the province or municipality, but like to individuals and organizations but like, also solve this problem. Exactly. <laughs> right. And also what is, to, like, I think that the largest amount of municipality could get was, I think, and oh my gosh, maybe I'm wrong, but two million what are you gonna do with two million dollars you can't even build one road like that's you know like you can't do anything with that and I think I think the reality is is that if you take transportation just as a very accessible example in this and we tie that into women fleeing violence um, just as a concept that's why we're saying these small routes um, these small town routes and these arteries having that public option is really an affordable public option is really um, important mm-hmm. and there's accountability that needs to happen there if you transplant that into our region we have townships that are highly inaccessible to mm-hmm. our central um, like our epicenters where there would be a shelter or services or other things, right? So it's a symbolism that all these big things that happen in a federal national level or happen in a provincial level manifest also in a, in a, in a city or a town or a hamlet kind of uh, yes. a concept, right? Those experiences still happen. So if we spend time at the local level saying, well, it's provincial and provincial says, well, we need money for federal and federal says, yeah, but we need provincial. And then provincial says, well, regional, so, you figure out how to do what you're going to do. Not your head spin. It's a hot potato. Has to find herself a ride, right? And that's kind of that's the problem, and where the advocacy gets really frustrating, uh, Mm -hmm. in my humble opinion, honestly. Well, it seems that all issues, really, all these issues that we talk about specifically in our in our organizations that impact women and the poorest people, most marginalized people, um, it's always a game of hot potato until we yell loud enough. So, you know, now childcare, that incredible letter that Sarah, you helped pen with the Ontario Network. Ontario Nonprofit Network and the Ontario Chamber of Commerce um, calling the provincial government to sign a childcare deal. So it's cross-sectoral now for mm-hmm. childcare. How do we make, and I, I smell a campaign on transportation, <laughs> hashtag transportation is sexy. 
but you know, like, how do we make these issues sexier? What's, you know, what, what are we, and I don't actually think there's a quite an answer to this per se, or I'm maybe you, you don't, you couldn't answer this. I can't answer this. It's just, it's sort of the biggest gripe in this advocacy work. Like we're consistently screaming into the void until enough people have heard. Yeah. There's an issue on the other side too, when all of the jurisdictions are involved, right? So we have we have the no, it's Joe's responsibility over there kind of rhetoric, but then we also have things like shelter where everybody has their hand in the honey pot in one way or another, and it's absolutely complete chaos. So Sarah, I know you've got feelings about this. Tell me your feelings about this. Actually, while you were speaking, both of you, I was thinking about, uh, I saw this on Twitter yesterday. It was a clip from Power and Politics. They were interviewing the new mayor of Calgary, Gioti Gondek, uh, who's a city councillor there. But the clip was about childcare and her response to childcare. And it kind of got me thinking because, you know, ahead of this conversation, but also just in general, it was a bit of an aha, which is, you know, I think we, what we do need is some new creative thinking around how to solve these intractable jurisdictional issues. So she said, because obviously in Alberta, they're also facing this provincial roadblock on childcare. And she has, you know, I guess did campaign on getting the childcare thing done. And so the question was about how, like, what are you thinking when you say that? And she brought up the example of rapid rehousing, which again, I don't know a ton about, but essentially something that was and, and typically is a provincially mandated thing where they get federal money and the province runs it. There has now become a municipal program where there is actually funding coming into cities in order to ensure that housing gets built and built quickly. And I'm mildly familiar with this in my role at YWC Toronto. I know that we have some involvement in, in rehousing and that we work with the city on that. And so she said, why don't we use some of those models to try to get that better deal for childcare, to expand access to spaces, to just strike up a, a deal that it may not be federal like it will be with the feds but maybe they could even kind of cut out the middleman i guess if the problem there of course is that it's very city specific right it doesn't help everyone but it it interested me because it was a bit of like okay if she's got this mandate to improve the well-being of calgarians and the economic opportunities for calgarians and that's her role and she sees that there's a, a benefit to having this a better situation for childcare in her city and was willing to think outside the box on how to get there with the feds. I'm like, that's, that's very interesting to me. And I wish that it could be more inclusive, like a provincial deal would be much more inclusive because it would, it would cover the whole province, but it maybe that could inspire. And I think she talked about how municipal, like there's, there's organizations like advocacy organizations and, and um, sort of groups around municipalities from across Ontario, like all the mayors get together and talk like, I don't know. Could there be some other solutions? So it just, it interested me in that it, it struck me as a bit more of a creative approach to what you do when there are these jurisdictional roadblocks that come up mostly because of political will and other political interests that are very party specific, for example, you know? So I, I just think we shouldn't have to be so backbreakingly creative and, yeah. and it shouldn't be, on us is I truly believe the role of government is to obviously make sure everybody has is is taking care of and I'm using air quotes obviously there should be some limits within reason on how much we pay in taxes but there are a lot of like up high up you know 
earners that get away with a lot and there's a lot of political influence and if if your job as a government is to really take care of your citizens like what should that look like and does is that is obviously you want to consult with people on the grassroots but do you want to make them do all the work and just throw a couple bucks their way to help get that done and again then we don't end up with anything comprehensive and useful to everyone it's really you only benefit if you have the hustle and the smarts and the connection and then it ends up replicating these other problematic structures that we have and a lot of folks get left behind so Mm -hmm. I always try and bring it back. I painfully bring it back to what people can do and how they can uh, create action around issues. So I'm going to ask this to both of you. In the case of you're talking to somebody, like if, even if we look at housing, if what can you give uh, your top five pieces of uh, pieces of advice that you've learned uh, that folks can use to help get past the dismissal argument of it's not our jurisdiction? Hmm. Right. After I just after I just finished complaining about how we have to do all this work. <laughs> well, you know, citizens. I mean, at the end of the day, that's yes. the power that we do have over is our power. Absolutely. So there are people who have enthusiasm who don't necessarily have the YWCA platforms that we do. Yeah. Who want to make a difference around housing, 100%. but are getting completely shut down because of that jurisdictional kind of hoopla. Yeah. No, I guess I would say think creatively do your research and build up a network of, of like-minded people who are also motivated because I think more minds, the better uh, with mutual interests and motivation and everybody has their own network, has their own network, has their own network. And so you could end up with like a really amazing effect of, of outreach. Um, it's true. Do not underestimate the power of your voice. And when you talk with something even on social media and you feel passionately about it and you are educated on it and you, you know, tag, tag those leaders across jurisdictions, you can write and engage your local politicians on this. Um, it always helps to have a group of others who are like-minded and thinking about this too. Just also try to think about like, what is the core reason at the end of the day of like, why we want this changed? And then think about other issues that are related. And maybe there's other ways to kind of come at this activism through another issue or, you know, that, that could bring in so much more because sometimes if something really, you know, you find those connective tissues and then you see what the overarching theme is that connects them. And maybe you can like build that into either a campaign or a message that could potentially resonate a little bit louder because it's broader. And I am thinking actually of this current campaign that we have with the Ontario YWCA coalition um, we call it She Covery On, O-N, which is essentially we want the um, Ontario government as it is now, but also all the parties that are vying for government next year in the 2022 election to have a plan for feminist economic recovery. And so under that umbrella, it's a big umbrella, but we have three different points, right? We have things that we think could be key ingredients to actually solving this. And, you know, one is, is upskilling money. Because we know that the government, this provincial government has the tools to do that. They have this money. They decide how to package it and send it out to people. They need to know that it's like a much more, like there's the need is great. And there's also some real skills there to make it happen. And then childcare, which again, you could say childcare is not an economic security issue, but it, it totally is, right? Like thinking about it in new ways and getting that ask under the same umbrella and then decent work, right? And again, you could talk to, like, so almost like childcare advocates and labor rights activists, and then, you know, these employment programs, like these could all be disparate things. Um, and maybe there are disparate organizations and interests that focus only on those things. 
But then when you bring these all under together under an umbrella that is really just uh, defining the connective tissue between and seeing the shared interests and all of these things, then your chances of getting more attention, uh, hopefully, are greater. I mean, we'll see on the other end of this campaign. It's going well so far, but like that's just an example of like how you might be able to think creatively by just looking for those themes. I'm having a moment where I'm like, this all seems. It's all awesome, but it's all, what a privilege. What a privilege it is. 100%, 100% privilege. So no, it I is. Wa- I want to flip it a little bit too, because I think that there are a lot of people with, with a voice that has to go towards trying to survive the systemic issues that need to be changed, yes. right? Yes, Thank And you for how there's a responsibility for folks like ourselves that have the, the privilege to be able to work, um, I mean, some days privilege, some days absolute headache, to work in the field where we have a platform behind us around advocacy mm-hmm. um, to make ourselves accountable to the people in the community whose issues are, who are most affected by those issues. And that's not just capturing voices um, or, or making sure that we check back in, but actually making sure that they know that there is a network behind Sarah that's actually saying, okay, yeah, let's, let's tackle this. There is a network that is behind the YWCA movement that is saying, yeah, we're going after this. And I had this conversation yesterday uh, with a group of people that I normally wouldn't interface with, but they had me in to talk about feminist shift, uh, which was awesome. And some of the projects we're doing just uh, stuff. And we talked about feminist recovery, uh, specifically the national sort of focus on feminist recovery, right? Which, which, symbolizes and ties into the Ontario focused one. Absolutely. Right. Some of the same sort of highlighted issues. And one of the women, she started crying because she still feels so completely overwhelmed by the lack of childcare and infrastructure that supported women trying to handle everything in the early days of the pandemic. And it wasn't even her experience. It was the experience of the women around her. And it was still, she was still sitting there so overwhelmed. And I remember that feeling because when, when things first started, not first started, I would say the first quarter of this nightmare that we live in every day. Um, but the first quarter of, of this pandemic, I remember seeing and feeling so much angst about those experiences, but I started to get to work. I started to push that feminist advocacy, like I that feminist recovery. I had an avenue and I had a moment where I was like, yeah, but we're like a year. We're a year past when I started to feel that. And I worked through that, not realizing that other people don't necessarily have the avenue to know that there's people like us that are like constantly being like, okay, I see you said no, or you said it's someone else's issue. So now I'm going to try it this way. And oh, that doesn't work. I'm going to try it this way. And to try and battle that jurisdictional issue, the trickle down issue, but also these, these inherent issues that show up regardless of geography um, or, or the depths of geography. So I also kind of want to say, I guess, directly that there's a role for folks like ourselves to be able to play in terms of bridging and taking on some of that, that labor piece. Yeah. It almost gives you a sense of like, it's not always just going to be this way, um, that there's somebody on it and, and that you can trust in somebody being on it. That doesn't mean they'll make all the change. No, but they're going to try. And yeah. And here's, and I'm a person they can come to if they want to directly talk to a human being about this yeah. problem. I think the challenge too, and, and every time that I talk to like the managers or staff and anyway, I'm like, the reason I do this advocacy is for you mm-hmm. um, to of course, tackle these huge intractable issues that are marred with all these jurisdictional problems, as we've talked about, that was the entry point of this conversation. But at the end of the day, if we can get childcare done, that should make improve your access to it and free up some money in your household to actually be able to, God forbid, enjoy your life, you know, mm-hmm. and, and have access to the, the things that you should have easy access to and affordability in general, like housing you know, access to a place that you can actually afford to live in. And a lot of the, the work on the ground that I, I try like a, to make a lot of it coming from like what I'm hearing from people who are staff within 
each program and system. Like I'm working on advocacy right now with the city, but it's via this um, shelter, like network of shelters in Toronto, because I was hearing like, there's a program with this, the city runs and province funds, of course, again, jurisdictional problems that they're trying to help women leaving shelter access market rent. And there's some subsidy program, but they're running into all these roadblocks and not actually accessing the program. Like they're not actually, there's no uptake. And so again, it's like, if I can just be a part of like trying to help make sure that program is more accessible and people can actually get that market housing, that, that would be huge, but it's hard to tangibly make things happen. I mean, as a journalist too, I was like, hopefully this story helps change something. And sometimes that happens, but most of the time it doesn't, but it has that larger effect of let's get people thinking like, that's why like the public opinion piece is so strong, right? Like yeah, the reason it still pushes the narrative. Is, yeah. It pushes the narrative. And then the politicians at the end of the day are accountable to us and they have to listen to, you know, what it is that we say. I mean, the majority, the problem is that we're also polarized, you know, in party interests and in regional areas and all that kind of stuff. Right. I don't know if that answered your question at all or like hit on it at all, but. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think it's just the, the complication of, of the issue. Yeah, I think that's actually a great place to leave the conversation at today. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today and for imparting your wisdom and your life experience on us. Um, I think this was a really fruitful conversation. And, and Jen and I talked offline about just, you know, this is more, this is kind of a more abstract conversation than others that we've had on the show. But I think it's an important sort of inside glimpse at what it looks like in the advocacy world. It's not just, we fought for this, we want it, now move on to the next project. It's this constant back and forth, this constant whirlwind of yeses and nos, and no, it's that guy, no, it's that guy, go over here, you know? So it's this constant sort of maze that we're, we're navigating and all of us hopefully together and more and more together. Yeah, there's a lot of strategic thinking that goes in, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Guessing and all that. Um, no, thank you very much. for. I really enjoyed the conversation. And I think it's an important one to have. And thanks for making space on your podcast uh, for these conversations. And let's not be strangers. For folks that want to tie into the She Covery Ontario, where can, where can we start following what you guys are uh, manifesting? Manifesting. Manifesting. Like it. Is it on yes. website? Is it, uh, or, or are yes, we waiting we are, in the wings for a launch? We're no, it's launched. It launched last Wednesday. Um, and we've had some great momentum since. We've had some media coverage and some uh, party leaders uh, big us up a bit on Twitter, which is great to see. Um, but we have, I, know, I don't know, um, some uh, member associations of what WCAs have like posted the petition. There's a petition you can sign. So speaking of action items, we have one at our ywcatoronto.org on our campaigns page. You can find the, the petition there. Also, if you follow us at YWCA Toronto on, on Twitter or on Facebook, uh, you can find lots of, or on Instagram, you can LinkedIn, you can find any information there. I think if you did the same with YWCA Cambridge, which you probably already do, it's all there as well. Right, Roz? That's right. Yeah. Awesome. Honestly, search any YWCA in Ontario. And I'm sure we all yes. have it on our socials by now. That's right. But, uh, yeah. Sign that petition and spread the word. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, with that, thank you so much for joining us on Feminist Shift. You can follow our advocacy work in between podcasts by visiting feministshift.ca or on social media under the handle Feminist Shift. Feminist Shift is a collaborative capacity building initiative between YW Kitchener-Waterloo and YWCA Cambridge, funded by Women and Gender Equality Canada.